Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hello, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to talk about Nicolas Oresme, a very interesting French theorist who, in addition to being a bishop, uh, took quite an interest in economics, in economic policy. He was born in the 1320s in Normandy. He went to the College of Navarre, school subsidized by the monarchy. Nothing really is known of his family. And he's likely to have been a very low background. In some sources, they say he probably came from a peasant family. He received his doctorate in 1356 and became Grand Master of the college. In the 1350s, France was racked with civil conflict. King John II struggled to maintain order, in part because he brazenly debased the coinage. And under Edward III, the English took advantage, seizing control of large parts of France in 1360. In 1364, Charles V became King of France. That same year, Oresma became Dean of the Cathedral of Rouen. Charles V, he was called the Wise, refused to accept the territorial concessions John made to the King of England. He continued the Hundred Years' War. In 1369, Charles V had Oresme translate the works of Aristotle into French, because most of the men at the king's court were poor readers of Latin and had no idea what was going on in Aristotle's texts, to be perfectly honest. The king was grateful to Oresme for translating the works and gave him a pension in 1371. And by 1375, the king regained nearly all of the French territory, leaving England with only Calais and Gascony. That same year, Oresma was accused of writing a translation of Marsilius's of Padua's Defensor Pacis. You might remember, we did Marsilius a little while back. We talked about Defensor Pacis. He was, however, acquitted of that charge. In 1376, Pope Gregory XI, who had resided at Avignon, attempted to return to Rome, but he died just two years later in 1378. Around the same time, Erasmus was made a bishop. A Roman mob besieged the Vatican, demanding the College of Cardinals elect a Roman pontiff who would keep the papacy in Rome. The college elected the Archbishop of Bari, a commoner by birth, as Pope Urban VI. The French cardinals argued that Urban VI was only chosen because of intimidation by the mob. They declared his his election invalid and chose their own pope, a cardinal from Geneva, as Pope Clement VII. Charles V ultimately decided to recognize Clement VII as pope, and this led to a 40-year schism in which there were two popes, one in Rome and one in Avignon. A couple years later, Charles V died in 1380. He was succeeded by Charles VI, the king who led France to defeat at Agincourt and was forced to leave the French throne to the king of England, Henry V. 
His son, Charles VII, refused to accept that, and with the help of Joan of Arc in the 1420s, he began to drive the English from France, expelling them from every French city apart from Calais by 1453. So, in this way, Charles V's reign is a kind of happy middle spot in the Hundred Years' War for France, a period when France is strong, but not the final period, not the period when France really finally kicks the English out. Oresma only outlived Charles V by two years. He dies in 1382, so he doesn't live to see all of that. But I wanted to give you a little bit of the context on where it's all going. So let's get into the thought. Oresma had a lot to say about physics, astronomy, and mathematics. We're not going to talk about all of that because this is Political Theory 101. It is, however, worth noting that he showed a willingness to break with Aristotle. So while his translations of Aristotle are pretty good, in his commentary, he will sometimes depart from Aristotelian orthodoxy, and this makes the commentary really interesting. He's one of the few writers of his period who takes an express interest in economics, and particularly in money, because the money issue was such a big issue in the 1350s when John II was having the realm torn apart by civil conflict. He argued that coinage belongs to the public, not the prince. And therefore, the prince has no right to debase the currency by changing the content or weight of the coinage. Princes are attracted to currency debasement because it's easier politically to debase the currency than it is to raise taxes. Debasement allows the prince to seize a large amount of privately held wealth without having to impose levies, hire tax collectors, make sure the tax collectors are trustworthy, and so on and so forth. If the currency debasement is done in a subtle way, it may even go unnoticed for some time, so it may not draw very much political opposition right away. However, if the prince does debase the currency substantially, the tendency will be for precious metals to move abroad, where they are worth more in the local currency. This gradually leads to an insufficient amount of metal in the realm for Aresma. Once the metal is abroad, it can be used by foreigners to make counterfeit money. The counterfeit money allows foreigners to have expansive purchasing power in France. They start buying up stuff in France, and that limits the ability of the French king to use the debased currency to, co to command the collective resources of the, of the realm. Now, while this discussion is too tied to metal to apply straightforwardly in modern context where metal content is not at all important to the currency. Some of it is familiar. If you debase the currency, this does reduce the real value of privately held assets, and it tends to boost exports as foreigners find they can use their stronger currencies to purchase more of what is produced. It also drives down imports as the weak currency will have less purchasing power with respect to goods produced elsewhere. Oresma also points out that fluctuations in the value of money inhibit trade and lending. If the value is changing very quickly, you know, people are going to have a hard time trading. They're going to have a hard time lending money because they can't be sure that they're going to get a decent return or that the money that they're trading for will be good in the future. However, in certain situations, like major wars, Oresma acknowledges that it is sometimes necessary to debase the coinage to raise very large sums of money very quickly, 
without having to wait for tax collectors or having to worry about tax fraud. Indeed, Oresma is not big on taxation. He kind of views taxation as similar to theft. He sounds a little bit like a right libertarian on that point, right? So, because he's not big on taxation, how does he think the king should make money? How does the king raise revenue? Well, in ordinary times, he thinks that kings should have really large estates of their own from which to fund the state. If the king has a lot of land, far more land than anybody else, then the king can use rents from his own land to finance the state. But this isn't going to be practical in a lot of situations where the demand for resources exceeds what the king can supply from his own lands. And if you start to break up the king's land, if the king has less property, then the king is going to need an entirely different source of wealth. And that's going to make the king more dependent on those actors that he's drawing that wealth from. So... Because Erezma doesn't think that taxation is much better than debasing the coinage, but he acknowledges that you sometimes do need to raise more money than kings can get from their own land, he will sometimes pay attention to the advantages currency debasement has over taxation, and therefore he will allow it in very specific kinds of situations. So even though a lot of people look at Erezma as, ah, look, this is an argument against currency debasement. I think the most interesting thing about the argument is the circumstances in which he says you can do it, why he says you can do it, and how you're meant to do it when you can. Right? When currency debasement is done for Erasma, it must be done not by the prince alone, but by the whole community. So he follows Marsilius of Padua in suggesting that the king differs from a tyrant insofar as the king recognizes that his authority is grounded on a consensus within the community. This means that the king cannot decide on what constitutes an emergency in which currency debasement would be acceptable. So he can't decide on the exception, to use language from someone like a Carl Schmidt, right? This has to be left to the community. So in a potential emergency situation, Erasmus says that the community needs to be assembled. If there's no time to assemble it to get the people to consent to something like currency debasement, the king can borrow the money in lieu of debasing it. The community cannot transfer the right of coinage to the prince, as this would be the for, for the community to consent to its own enslavement. It would violate the community's natural rights, and the community cannot do anything that alienates the rights it holds by nature. So the community cannot transfer its natural rights to the prince through an artificial process. Natural rights for Resma cannot be transferred or alienated in that way. The right of coinage belongs to the community by nature because for Resma, property rights are natural rights, and the right of coinage is therefore necessary for the community to exercise its property rights. Now, all that said, it becomes clear in the commentary on Aristotle's works that Eresma's understanding of the community is restricted to the kinds of people Aristotle accepts as potentially virtuous. He writes that oligarchy and democracy are lawless forms of government based entirely on self-interest rather than on the common good, the good of the whole community, which for Eresma is central to any valid or good form of government. 
So with Eresma, we get an argument for a mixed monarchy in which the monarch is limited by a set of aristocrats, and those aristocrats are identified with the community. So what if the king violates the natural rights of these aristocrats of this community? For Eresma, even a well-intentioned revolt done for the sake of the common good is wrong if it leads to any great evil, for example, thievery or murder. Since most revolts are done out of self-interest and involve thievery and murder, there isn't a lot of space for revolt here. He says, quote, those who are preeminent in merit would be most justified in attempting sedition, but even then, because of the many ways in which sedition can go wrong, it is, quote, not to be recommended. Now, intriguingly, Oresma applies these arguments to the church itself, arguing that the church is a polity and its structure can be evaluated through Aristotelian political theory. This means that the Pope's authority must be qualified in the same ways that the authority of the king is qualified. And remember, Oresma is a bishop, so he has a role in the church structure. He is talking about an institution that he's part of. This is not an external critique. Oresma right? argues that in the church, offices and benefits are not being distributed on the basis of merit and that the church needs to be reformed to correct this. He thinks that the rank-and-file priests in particular are too poor. This induces, on the one hand, priests to chase higher offices so that they can have an income. And on the other hand, it also causes trouble in the church because priests that aren't able to get the offices start valorizing poverty and arguing that priests shouldn't have any property. And the Pope, because of course the Pope has property, therefore becomes subject to heretical abuse. Right? In 1363, he gave a Christmas Eve sermon before the popes in Avignon, where he warned of the dangers that would befall the church if it did not reform the way it distributed offices and wealth. Right? If you think about this, right? for Aristotle, you need property to have leisure time. And you need leisure time to become cultivated and get the virtues. So if you have a priest who says that property is no good, we need to get rid of property and live a life of poverty. For Oresma, this priest is rejecting the necessary background conditions for leisure and for virtue. He specifically takes aim at the mendicant priests, the begging priests, right? If you think back to our episode about the Arthashastra, we've talked a little bit before about wandering ascetics who live off of the donations of the towns that they pass through. In ancient Indian political theory, the wandering ascetic has the most advanced kind of spiritual life. Well, for Oresma, because he's an Aristotelian, the wandering ascetic doesn't have the necessary property to have leisure, to have virtue. So the wandering ascetic cannot become a virtuous person. And this is why Oresma cannot be a Franciscan, right? However, he doesn't just criticize the mendicants as being you know, decadent or, or without virtue. He argues that the existence of the mendicants is a consequence of the way the, the church distributes offices and money. It's because the priests don't have sufficient property that they turn to begging and they adopt theological positions that emphasize their poverty as a good. So, 
for Erasmus to get rid of the practice of voluntary poverty, which for him poses a threat to the church as an institution, the church needs to make sure that all of the priests have property, which means it needs to break up the holdings of the very, very wealthy office holders and give more of that property to the rank and file priests. Right? One of the things that he gives the king the power to do is to break up monopolies. So while he puts a heavy emphasis on property rights, he's big on the idea that the king can break up monopolies, and so can the pope. Indeed, the pope should. Indeed, the pope must. Otherwise, this inequality of property will rip the whole thing apart. So you get an argument that the problem with the church is its economic organization. It's not just, oh, the church is corrupt. It's the church is not distributing things adequately. He says that, When Aristotle writes that a state is composed of two sections, the poor and the rich, Aristotle does not mean mendicants when he speaks for the poor. For according to this science, they are no part of the city. Rather, Aristotle is referring to small landholders. So if the church is to be a polity analogous to a Greek city-state, then every priest needs to be a small landholder. You get an argument for a property-owning church. I think this is just a really interesting critique of the Catholic Church in the 14th century. Uh, and it helps to complicate some of the arguments that you get when you start looking at you know, what, what were the Franciscans saying and what were the defenders of the existing church saying. This is a very complicated interesting little position. It's a bit like the position of, say, that the kind of Keynesians or the social liberals, the post-war liberals in the 20th century, a little bit like that. Of course, whole different economic situation, whole different kind of political economy. But I, I think it's a really interesting argument, especially with respect to the church. And when we started on Oresma, I did not expect to find so much of interest about the structure of the church, but there's a ton. And I ultimately felt that it was more interesting than the stuff he had to say about money, to be perfectly honest, even though he started this uh, looking looking into what he had to say about money and about the king's relationship to money. A uh, lot of overlap with Marsilius of Padua, but, but the Franciscans were a no-go for Oresma. And I think that's really interesting. That's where you can really see, you know, if you buy the Aristotelian argument for where virtue comes from, It means you have to be committed to some kind of property system, even if that property system can be regulated in particular ways politically. Uh, So, uh, ultimately, we get an argument for secular redistribution, but within and among the landed aristocracy and, of course, excluding the peasantry, because for Erasmus, the peasants don't have enough property to even begin to enter into the discussion. Uh, and the fact that the church has priests that are effectively you know, peasants or, or perhaps even uh, poorer than peasants insofar as they beg, uh, this for him is this huge, huge uh, basis for rot. Anyway, that's all I've got to start. Alex, what did you think? What did you get out of reading Erasmus? What did you find interesting? Did anything surprise you? Um, is it a universal law that all money falls in value just over time? Because I think that started when they started... Uh, they got rid of monometallism, just having one precious metal inside the coin and started mixing it and alloying it. Well, I think one of the things we kind of talked about on the Roman political economy episode was a context in which if you don't mint more money, there's a deflationary effect, right? In Rome, if you didn't continue to mint more money, 
then what would gradually happen is that the coins that were minted in Italy would make their way further out, right? And so the amount of currency in Italy would fall. And if there was economic growth, or even if the economy was just stable, gradually that would have a deflationary effect. You know, if you have a system that ensures that you know, the same quantities of money is being minted everywhere all at once, that it's not one central mint in one particular place, but that coins are being minted everywhere in a systematized way that ensures a kind of balance to that, then you don't get that same kind of problem. So I don't think it's a, a universal law that the currency is necessarily inflationary. But also, I think if you're in a situation where the currency doesn't inflate at all, Oftentimes, that's a worse situation because if you don't make, uh, if you don't print or mint more coins in that situation, you'll get deflation and it will become very difficult um, because the incentive will be for people to hold the currency and wait for the value to increase. But does deflated currency cause inflation or not? No, deflation is the opposite of inflation. Okay, okay. Deflation is a situation where the value of the currency rises, right? If you shrink the amount of currency, the quantity of currency, right? If there's only, you know, instead of 100 uh, gold coins available, there's only 10 gold coins, you're going to have to price everything lower. Yeah, I thought for some reason that the value of the currency is different from the the prices. It's the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. And this is why it's it's valuable to think about these things, because certain things that are, are relatively straightforward only become obvious when you start to play this game. Yeah, it's because it's I, I'm not familiar with the words. I know that de- deflation hurts the merchant class. So, and in Italy, I know that in Italy also you were saying uh, you you can stop deflation when there's lots of minting going on in all the localities. But Italy had a big problem in the Middle Ages with having lots of different coins as opposed to somewhere like England, which had central control over everything. Well, yeah, that's another issue. If you have coins being made in different places, then you know, the tendency will be for um, the, the amounts of metal or the specific types of coins to become uh, an issue in terms of which coins people want to have. And you know, that can that can just be a huge mess. And that's what Aresba talks about here with uh, coins in... One in, in, say, France, if they have been debased, uh, the, the tendency will be for the metal to go to other places where it can be used to buy more stuff. Yeah. So uh, I know you read a lot of other stuff apart from De Moneta is the name of the, De Moneta is the name of the text about money. Um, what did you get out of the... Uh, Commentaries on Aristotle. Um, you know when you're comparing him to Marsilius? Yeah. And I guess a similarity, you know, Discourse 1 versus Discourse 2 of Marsilius, where Discourse 1 is about Aristotle and natural reason, and then Discourse 2 is a few verses from Scripture and very little Aristotle. But then, right. And Discourse 2 is addressed to the church and Discourse 1 to the state. But obviously the implication is that you can apply everything that's said about the state to the church. Just you can't, you're not allowed to say that explicitly because then they'll come for you. Hmm. Um, See, yeah. Aresma is able to do this in part because Aresma doesn't adopt an anti-property rights Franciscan position. How, so how would an anti-property rights Franciscan position do? Yeah. Do, because well, yeah, the anti-property rights kind of Fra- Franciscan position 
of you know actually you a, a real priest wouldn't have any property because having property is is the wrong kind of of spiritual way of relating to the world that kind of position is a gigantic all-encompassing attack on the church because the church has enormous amounts of property and many office holders within the church have enormous amounts of property right so if you make that kind of argument, it becomes this all-encompassing destructive argument. One of the things that Aresba catches on to is that if you're going to be an Aristotelian, then virtue depends on having property because property is the basis for leisure. So if you're going to have that position, one of the implications there is that that means that priests, if they're going to be virtuous people and spiritual leaders in the community, have to have property. So that prevents the all-encompassing attack that you get from the Franciscan point of view that um, you know, can ultimately lead into these very heretical positions that involve negating the Pope's authority on the basis that he's a property holder. Aristotle, in this case, seems elitist because if you're a priest who has property, then you'll defend things with reasoning from first concepts, first principles, whereas the Franciscans are kind of almost against that metaphysical approach and just say, let's use example and teach by practice. Yeah. So you have cases. It, one of the things that's interesting here is that when he's talking, when Oresma is talking about politics in the state, the peasants are just straightforwardly excluded because the peasants don't have property. They can't have leisure. They can't have virtue. They're just excluded. But in the church, in point of fact, it's already the case. There are priests who are part of the church who don't have property. And so for Aresba, the answer is not to kick them all out of the church, but to do a redistribution so that those priests will have property and therefore they will acquire virtue and they will be less hostile to the church hierarchy. Uh, so the solution in the church is very different from the solution that he, I mean, in the state, because the peasants aren't part of things, he just recommends not including them. Wait, does he say that about peasants? Because in the illustrations of them, you get a mixture, like in some, they are excluded, but I don't know. I think he also draws them in a, in like an eye. I don't know. There's just multiple uh, depictions of them. Yeah. I mean, the issue is if you don't have property and you don't acquire virtue, then when you engage in politics, you'll do it in a self-interested way, right? And this is why he says that uh, democracy is necessarily a self-interested regime because it's a regime that includes people who don't have substantial amounts of property. And so those people will use the political institution to pursue their self-interest rather than the common good. For him, the common good only becomes visible once you have enough property that your basic needs are taken care of, right? And only the people who have property are in a position to you know, then engage in the Aristotelian project. Aristotle you know, can be read as, as suggesting uh, you know, something like more of a mixed regime that includes a democratic element. I think one of the ways in which Erasmus differs, and maybe uh, you, you could argue with me if, you, if there are bits that you think are different uh, in the text that suggest a different reading, but I think Erasmus is, is less interested in incorporating the demos into the mixed constitution than Aristotle is. That's not to say that Aristotle is, is all that interested either, because Aristotle you know, greatly, greatly blunts the force of the demos by including uh, the aristos, uh, the aristocrats, and uh, and the monarchical element. Uh, but I think here there's even less interest in including it. I mean, this isn't about how the demos behave in institute. Well, it is. I mean, uh, they're basically told to follow their own private good as a means to securing the public good. 
whereas only officials in the state and especially the king are supposed to sacrifice their private well-being because of virtue. Well, because the demos isn't really capable of, of, for him, of finding public good in the first place because the demos doesn't have enough property to have enough leisure to have enough virtue. So the demos for him is not really capable of thinking about the public good. And therefore, it, it would be pointless to expect the demos to, to pursue it because the demos isn't in position to have thought about it. So, so basically, the, the, the rule is better because they can sacrifice more because they've already got all the normal survival sacrifices out of the way. Because they have property, they're able to think about the common good. And this is the thing. Having for, for these kinds of theorists, for Aristotelians in general, you need to have private property to be able to think about the public good. And if you don't have private property, you'll only think about how you can get some, how you can get what you need, how you can get stuff. Right? And if you're doing that, then you're not thinking about politics in the way the Aristotelian wants you to think about it. But because he's kind of flirting with conciliarism and using councils to control the church, and he calls for the people to... Well, the king can't alter the currency unless the people say so. so the, the community. The but commu- what's the whole. community, right? Okay. What's the community? So the community is not people who don't have property. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's a, the yeah. that's the thing. That's the sleight of hand there. If you if you miss it, I mean, I don't think it's a sleight of hand because I think in his own time it would have been obvious that it wasn't. But for us, it it reads like a sleight of hand because we're accustomed to the idea that when people use terms like people or community, that they're being all encompassing. But he's not being all encompassing. That's why I, I read off that quote about. Um, that a state is composed of two sections: the poor and the rich. But when Aristotle says this, he does not mean mendicants. Mm. He's talking about small landholders. If the poor are small landholders, they're not peasants because peasants don't hold the land. Oh, they're out of the state. Yeah, completely. Right. So peasants are out, outside of the community in this sense. And yet they're part of the national territory, which is just starting to exist and to get rid of the feudal. Right, but they're part of the resources of the of the state, sure, but you know, so are the cows. <laughs> okay, but they're not resources like that because that when you, whenever he talks about the common good as being a justification for anything, including laws which like protect peasants. You know? Yeah, so, but you know also also the laws have to, you know, protect the cows. <sighs> Shuttle. You know, you have to make sure that the you know, you, your farms are well well managed and that you don't, you know, burn up all the all the wheat and you have to make sure that you're, uh, yeah. this is the thing, like a lot of these aristocrats have a kind of noblesse oblige attitude. And the thing is, he came from peasant stock, but there were a few different ways in which someone who came from peasant stock could get up in the society. And because Erasma gets up and becomes a bishop, at that point, he goes, oh, the thing that liberated me is that I was able to get property. I was able to get enough property that I was able to become a virtuous person. And that's what everybody else needs if they want in. They have to get property. Now, if you are someone from a peasant family, if you manage to get into the church, you might be able to you know, come up through that mechanism. But it's not something that's going to be widely available or open to many people. Oresma was a brilliant guy, and so he was able to get up that way. But that's not going to be something most people can do. However, as is often the case, if you're one of a small handful of people from a particular group and you manage to make it in, you then become very cognizant of what you have that people from your group didn't have. And oftentimes you, you start to value it very heavily because you recognize the difference that it makes in your life. 
right? You hear about yeah. you know, people who grew up poor, once they get money, they're like, oh my God, money is important. You've got to have it. And that's what happens here with a resume. You know, he grows up in a very poor family, but once he's a bishop, he goes, wow, this is the thing that allows me to live a good life. You can't live a good life if you don't get this. It just, um, when, when he, uh, he talks about the, I, are you a virtuous person or a continent person, I think, or incontinent, sorry. Like you can have, um, I was basically trying to link it to an illustration in the manuscript where someone who's not quite virtuous, but isn't a vice either, is drawn in very simple clothes because in the original manuscript, they were drawn in two fancy clothes and they got rid of that. So as if, as if to say, and, and I think they're a priest in the second manuscript. Yes, a poor person can be continent. A poor person can, uh, for him. Or a priest, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, pick up a set of habits that allow them to you know, live a, a functional life, but they're not going to be able to think about the habits in the way that he thinks that you should, right? Like in, in Aristotle, in Aristotle's work, there's a lot of people who, pick up a set of habits that give them a discipline, you know, as a, a kind of discipline life, but they don't ascend to the point where they can think about the habits and think about what the habits are for. They don't understand the habits and their purpose. They're not able to reassess, you know, which habits they should have or reconstruct their habits. They have to be taught a set of habits and then the habits are a discipline that keep them in, keeps them in line. A person who has been taught a set of habits and is able to follow and stick with those habits, that person is continent, but they have not reached the level of philosophical and spiritual training that the leisure time is necessary for to actually get to the point where they can think about, well, what is the purpose of these habits? What's their telos? What's their final end? Why do we have these habits? And once you're able to think about the telos of the habits, then it becomes possible to reevaluate the habits and go, well, should we have these habits? Should we change them? And a similar kind of discourse could be had around, say, rituals in the Confucian tradition, right? If you get to be a sage, you can think, uh, you know, what are these rituals? Why, you know, why do we have them? Uh, should we change them? But if you're someone who doesn't get that far, if you're just a gentleman, right, then you follow the rituals that you've been taught. The continent person follows Aristotelian habits, but isn't in position to evaluate them. Uh, or to redesign them. And if that person tries to take on a political role of changing the society, that person will make mistakes because they're continent, but not virtuous. And in the same way, if you have a lot of priests who are poor, those priests will not understand why things run the way they do. And those priests will make changes that for Erasmo would be not the right changes. Would you agree the difference between them is something called right appetite? Because that's what Oresme says. He says that the incontinent person has deliberation so and the true judgment. So they listen to reason, but they don't have the correct motivation. Yeah. Right, because they're not able to, mo to be uh, oriented directly toward the good because their abs the absence of property prevents them from thinking about the common good. They're stuck having to think about how do I get through the day? How do I get where I need to go from point A to point B? So they can't have be oriented toward the good because it only becomes possible to think about the good once you have leisure and you can only have leisure once certain basic things are taken care of. Hmm. And then desire for good just automatically gives you power or justification to change ritual? Well, desire for good will lead you into the, the kind of more philosophical, more spiritual way of engaging. And then that, if you're doing that together with other people who are involved in the same project in an assembly, for instance, you know, then it becomes possible to have deliberations among the right sort of people who come from the right sort of, have the right sort of stuff, mm. right? 
Uh, and then this is yet what an aristocratic assembly is meant to be. It's a bunch of people who have all the prerequisites for virtue. And because they have it, they conduct their deliberations in this reasonable and rational kind of way. I mean, those aren't the terms that are used here, but uh, in, in this kind of sensible way that's based on you know, really thinking about the common good and not just about trying to get ahead or trying to survive or trying to climb out of the pit of the lower class, right? The person who's trying to get out of the pit when they do politics, it's about what will help me out of the pit. It's not about what will help the city in the long run, all things included. That's the argument here. This is why Aristotle ultimately kicks these people out or puts them in a very minimal role. If you're in Athens and you need the rowers to cooperate, you have to include them in some way. You want to include them, but don't let them run the place because for Aristotle, the demos never has virtue and can never be trusted to make good decisions. However, if the city's wealth and prosperity relies on rowers rowing the triremes, okay, give over some part of the state to the demos so that you can get the rowers to row, but make sure that you check that part of the state by empowering a monarch and empowering an aristocracy. That's how Aristotle squares that circle. In the case of Erasmo, where you're not talking about a rower society based on triremes, you're talking about peasants who are currently locked out of political power, why would you give it to them? Whereas in the church, the priests are already in, they're already in the system, and these landless priests are a major issue that you need to deal with because they're already in. Once they're in, then you have to make them virtuous because they already have access. And the way to make them virtuous is to give them the, pro the property. It, it's more doable within a church because you don't have so many priests that it's impossible to redistribute the church property in such a way that they all have enough to get by. When you're talking about the peasants, that's much harder to do in his context because the surplus is not big enough to give all of the peasants property to the scale that would allow them to participate. These days, we can start to think about that kind of property, we start thinking about, you know, could we really create a, a situation where everybody has access to certain higher values? But in the 14th century in France, I mean, that's not going to be possible with peasants. But he does think in this way when he's thinking about priests. But doesn't he talk about pr price fixing on corn? And because it's publicly produced when he's basically, yeah. Does that bear on this at all? Because you can uh, that would that would be a separate question. Okay. I think that's really about just you know how do you keep enough uh, enough corn available to the population so you don't get trouble. But then, if if you need right. their, their consent whenever you want to change the currency, then surely you need to frame. Well, you don't need the ordinary person's consent. I think you, again, this again, gets this, back to yeah. you only need the the nobles and the issues with the price of the currency. The kinds of uh, excuse me with the with the corn. The issues you get with corn are to do with people who can't afford food or who can't get any food because there's a shortage. In the 1350s in France, the, the people who are rebelling are not aristocrats generally. Most of the rebellions in the 1350s in France come from the third estate. They're peasant rebellions. They're merchant rebellions. These are not groups that for Oresma are part of the debate. Now, it is true that if you debase the currency, you'll stir up these parts of the society, right? But the break on the debasement by the king is not meant to be rebellion by the third estate. The way that you avoid having rebellion by the third estate be the break is by having some assembly of aristocrats be the break.
And that's what he thinks should have happened. Instead of the king being checked by the rebellion of the third estate, the king should have been checked by a set of aristocrats who could say, no, we don't think that this situation calls for debasement, certainly not debasement to that degree. So when he's talking about express consent of community, is it like Marsilius, the weightiest part? That could be just the yeah the nobles on behalf of all others. Yeah. I think with Erezba, the thing that is really distinctive is that there's a very explicit emphasis on who it can include and not include. I think with Marsilius, there's a little bit more room in that to play around. But here there isn't. Here it's very Aristotelian in an, in the scope, in a very explicit way. Is that connected to Marsilius seeing the common good more in terms of freedom? Uh, using freedom as like a criterion by which the common good is judged, whereas a resume doesn't seem to do that. I think some of it with Marsilius is uh, a certain carefulness that Marsilius has about getting overly specific. You know, part of what helps a resume out is that a resume has the firm backing of Charles V. By translating these texts into French, you know, the Aristotelian uh, texts, he is making Charles V out to be this patron of the arts and philosophy. He's making Charles V's reign out to be this really wonderful period in French history when, you know, look, the great texts are being translated into French because this is an important, you know, language, because we're doing something important here. So in doing all of this, Arespa is very careful to not undermine in any way the legitimacy of the monarch, right? If anything, that he says, no, no, sedition is not okay, especially when it's done by people who are not nobles, people who don't have access to leisure and therefore won't be thinking about the common good. They really can't do sedition. And the king absolutely has to crush that kind of thing, right? Would the pe- I think there was a line. Maybe it's just a commentary or, or me taking the, the notes wrong, but it was like, you can't have a revolt by the multitude because that would imply that the multitude is virtuous and that's dangerous. And then I'm just thinking, would the peasants have even used the word virtue or would that have just not existed in their language almost? It just seems so offensive to say. That's an interesting quote. Yeah, it almost suggests that the word revolt should not even be used to describe things the third estate does because the third estate is so removed from the kind of uh, virtuous deliberation that is necessary to uh, deem something a revolt that uh, you, you shouldn't even use the term. That's interesting. I didn't. Uh, I haven't really thought too much about that. But yeah, th- there is really just a straightforward exclusion here of people who don't don't have the qualities. But they have moral strength. They have continence. He admits that. Yes, they can be continent. They can be continent. And part of the role of the king is to make people continent with the law, by giving people a set of habits, by installing social practices through the law, through the uh, you know the king's justice and the king's uh, you know, ability to enforce the law. These are things that the king has to do to discipline these people who won't be able to otherwise acquire their virtues because they don't have enough property to get enough leisure. And they're not even, they're, they're actually also included within the honorable classes. The, the dishonor, I mean, merchants as well are honorable. Dishonorable is like bankers, money lenders, bullion dealers. Yeah. Right. He gives a certain amount of room to, to regard certain sets of people as continent. You know, it's not as if everybody in the third estate's a bad person. Uh, but this continence does not go far enough to equip you to participate in politics because the standard here for being able to really do politics is very high. And this is the thing about scholastic Aristotelian political theory. The standard for being 
virtuous enough to do politics is always so high in this kind of work. And this is the thing that really will make a lot of the modern liberal, uh, in, more individualist theory later on so different because it lowers the standard for being able to effectively participate. You know, if you say, well, anybody can be virtuous because we have, you know, the right sentiments or, you know, we know in the heart mind what's right. This extends participation to much larger sections of the population, you know, like we, we talked in, about in the Muzong San episode. Uh, but here, here, uh-uh. Here it's, it's scholastic and Aristotelian and it's narrow. It's narrow. But once you do let people in, now, because you've let people in, you have to make sure they have property because otherwise they'll ruin the whole thing. So once you do have priests, you better make sure they have property. Has this got anything to do also with the purchasing power increasing over time in the Middle Ages or not? Not really. Just people having more money to spend or, or is that not the same thing as purchasing power going up or? Well, I think when we're talking about the church, it's to do with how the church comes to distribute offices and the tendency over the course of the Middle Ages for substantial parts of the church itself, for people who have positions in the church who are priests, to fall into the mendicant category. So you get this kind of dropping out. Like when we talk about in ancient Rome, you know, in uh, you know the, the tendency for these uh these hermits, these desert hermits to get a big following in the fourth century, right? The desert dwelling hermit gets a big following because he doesn't have any money. He goes off by himself. He gives up his property and runs off, right? This kind of person then when he comes back can potentially be uh, a competitor for influence with bishops, with people who are established in the church and who have property because this person seems to have really dropped out, Right? So when you have a situation where you're creating large numbers of mendicants or beggars or hermits, when religions create large numbers of these people, they can potentially become a threat to the organized power of the property-holding church. And so what has happened, according to Erasma, is that over time, the church has distributed offices and property in such a lopsided way that there are too many rank-and-file priests with too little property, and that makes them sympathetic to the wrong kinds of political arguments, because without that property, they're just not going to be able to think about the good of the church as a whole. He said that ironically, I mean, yeah. Well, I, yeah, there's a, you know, the good of the church as a whole, if you think about it, what does the Franciscan thing do? It kicks off a bunch of heretical movements that are very critical of the church for having so much property. And for the, the high-ranking members of the church having all these fine clothes and ornaments, you get to the Protestant churches in a, you know, a couple hundred years. What does a Protestant church look like? Unadorned, simple. Oh, look, it's closer to the real thing because it doesn't have you – know, the priests don't have a bunch of property. Of course, nowadays in, a lot, in you know, some American Protestant churches, the priests have enormous amounts of property and now you have prosperity gospel and the notion that if you are, are virtuous you'll get rewarded with money in this life some stuff has, has gone dramatically off the rails recently but you know one of the the moves here in protestantism was to say ah the person who doesn't have any property is the one who's close to god well all of aristotelianism is firmly against that for all of anybody who's a scholastic Having property is a prerequisite for having virtue. So if you say, no, no, the really virtuous person is the person who's given up all their property and, and wanders around and begs, 
you've completely flipped the whole thing on its head from the point of view, you know, say, an Arist- uh, Aristotelian. So this is a, a grave threat because to the church, because if you say, well, the person who doesn't have pro- any property is probably more virtuous than the person who does, whew, and now you have to turn everything around. So because Erasmus is a bishop and he's clearly committed to the church, he's clearly committed to the king because he's a counselor for Charles V and, and deeply, deeply in bed with that regime. What he does is he recommends reforms that will weaken the sources of resistance to both the king and to the church. And so the reforms that he proposes are firmly about strengthening the position of those institutions. So he, it's obvious to the Pope who, you know, he gives the, the 1363 Christmas, uh, Christmas, uh, uh, speech. He gives this in front of high ranking members of the clergy. He writes these you know, commentaries on Aristotle for the members of the king's court. He's in the court. He has a personal relationship with the king. So all of this reform argument is really about strengthening the institutions. And everyone knows that. So nobody's got a problem with him. Yeah. And it's also about creating a bit big middle class, which always seems to be, mm-hmm. yeah, he just seems very much like a centrist. And maybe that's just Aristotle, or maybe that's just all virtue theory, the golden mean, but yeah, he, very inoffensive message, even though it's radical, but that's just the times being anti-monarchy privilege. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's potentially radical once you take on the premise that you've got to include the people who have previously been excluded. So when he talks about the church, because the priests are already in, it sounds kind of radical. But when he talks about the state, because the peasants aren't in, he says, well, of course, don't let them in. <laughs> But So it doesn't sound as radical in that context. Indeed, when we were talking about him in relation to the state, he sounded like a libertarian. I mean, taxation is theft. You know, he sounded you know, very right wing. It's But when he talks about the church, give property to the rank and file priests. <laughs> I, I, I want to bring it back to some economic issues. Yeah, a lot, go for a it. A lot of the, yeah, I guess I, I, I saw somewhere that the three biggest problems of demand by more people and monetization and then government spending from military costs in a centralized state and then also some social groups calling for lower wages due to inflation and i guess all of those include i don't know what you'd say working people (laughs) so all of them you would need a council that's very informed and agrees with what they want so and yet for all these things even though they have not not in the 14th century because the workers are weak in the 14th century i mean they get a little bit stronger as a result of the plague you know but uh, the position of the workers is not so strong that the workers are going to be able to really push around the aristocrats in this period that's really not going to happen but and that's why it's you know for Erasmus, it's great that the peasants don't have a political aren't included politically. Well, if they were included, you would then have a bunch of problems dealing with their grievances. However, the peasants in the in the you know, plague period do get to a point where they can rebel and their rebellions can be troublemaking because there's a little bit of a labor shortage. And they do manage to get from the nobles some better terms for periods of time as a consequence of the plague. So there's a little bit of help that comes from them there, but there's not going to be any emphasis from someone like Erasme or really from any scholastic on the idea that you've got to make sure that the council is listening to the peasants. No, for the council, the peasants are not people that you can trust. 
because the peasants, you know, their ideas about politics are just grounded on what benefits them. The council knows, you know, the, the uh, aristocrats know what benefits the peasants. They, they don't need the peasants to tell them that. They're perfectly aware of what benefits the peasants. I think the one of the things that was important about this system is that it had to be the case that the nobles were distributed enough throughout the country that you know, they had to administer their estates in such a way that they had to see what was going on. And for instance, if you are in a castle and your peasants are upset because of the food prices, you're going to be concerned about that because you're going to be worried about your peasants rebelling against you, right? You're going to be worried about public order issues in, in the town that you run, right? So when you come to some assembly to talk about that as a major problem confronting the kingdom, you're going to be talking about the common good. You're not going to be framing it purely in terms of the peasants. You're going to say the whole realm is going to come apart if we don't do something about the food price, mm. right? Oh, we can't debase the currency because we're already having too many issues. But that becomes, it's a public order thing. It's an order thing. It's not about having a humane attitude to the peasants. It's not about the peasants being important or the peasants knowing what's good or the peasants having any kind of deep wisdom. It's just public order requires that we make certain concessions to the peasants at this time. And if you are a noble who actually goes to the town that you administer and has a castle in the town, has an estate in the town, lives in the town, then you're going to know what the mood is among the peasants there, and you're going to be able to bring that to an assembly meeting. One of the things that goes wrong in the French Revolutionary period is that the nobles stop spending time on their estates because they all start piling into Paris to try to influence the king. And they're spending all their time in Paris socializing with each other. And they get very elaborate with their outfits and their costumes as they try to impress each other. But none of them actually ever goes home to their estates. And because they don't go home to their estates, they have no idea what's going on. And so you start getting information problems because that regime is over-centralized, where you can't really have anything useful to say about decision-making unless you're in Paris. But if you have, say, an assembly that the king has to go to if he wants to debase the currency, then he calls the assembly. And then the nobles come in from their little castles all over the kingdom. They come in, and then they talk about the problem. And then the king you know, can interface with them, and they bring all the local knowledge to the meeting. Right. That's how uh, you know, a medieval system is meant to work. That's what it's supposed to do, this kind of system. But by the time you get to the French Revolutionary period, it's all so centralized that none of that works. You know, the reason you don't get the French Revolution at an earlier stage, one of the reasons, is that the system works better when the kingdom isn't as decentralized. Of course, there are benefits to centralization. So the tendency is to centralize over time. Right. And so as you centralize, you gain certain advantages, but you slowly undermine some of the things that the more decentralized kingdom did for you, like giving you a more decentralized knowledge base by drawing on aristocrats physically located in different areas. Right. And eventually that disadvantage comes to outweigh the advantages that you're getting of, you know, say, being able to leverage the wealth of the whole state at once from a centralized singular point. And what you then get in the French Revolutionary period is an attempt to find a state which can leverage local knowledge and can collect all the resources into a central point and deploy them. That's what nation states try to do through their, you know, for instance, their representative democratic systems. They try to leverage local knowledge and concentrate all of that into a single standing army that you can use to bludgeon whoever it is that you don't like.
when uh, you're getting local knowledge in the Middle Ages from the estate, that's almost opposite what Oresme said, which is don't run the currency like an estate. It can't be an ownership of the king. It has to be like a he has to be a steward, authorized. Well, right, the king can't own it like it's the king's own estate, right? The currency doesn't belong to the king, but right. But of course, local knowledge of economic conditions can be relevant when you come to the assembly for deciding whether what the king wants to do, like the king will go, we have to fight, say, the Holy Roman Empire. We have to fight a war with the Holy Roman Empire, right? Or with the English. Let's say the English. It's more appropriate to say the English. We have to fight a war with the English. I need money. So I need to do a currency debasement to to get some money really fast, right? Now, the king is paying attention to this war that the king is fighting with the army. And the king is focused on the war and the war needs. And the king may be right that there's a war need and there's a need for money. However, the king will not have been able to go to all of the different towns in France and get a sense for how the debasement is likely to be received, right? So the nobles come and they know how things are going in their towns and whether the debasement, you know, how far could you debase the currency without causing too much trouble? And so they'll have a discussion and the king is noble and he's trying to defend the realm and the aristocrats, they're noble and they're trying to do what they think is best for the whole kingdom. This is the model. Okay. I'm not saying it literally is always this, but this is how it's supposed to work. Right. And then by bringing the local knowledge that the aristocrats have together with the king's, you know, understanding of the foreign policy situation and the military need, because the king is there and he's fighting, you know, they're supposed to be able to come to an agreement and an understanding. If they're all interested in the common good and they're all virtuous people doing what Aristotle says you should do, they shouldn't have that much trouble figuring it out. <laughs> but if you start injecting people into the discussion who just want the money for themselves because they you know, are worried about their own needs and aren't properly brought up, right? then it all goes you know, to hell in a handbasket. That's the way that the scholastics frame all this. And I, one of the things I love about Oresme as a thinker is that this is all because of his attentiveness to the economic stuff. It's a medieval account that really pays attention to, you know, how all of that comes together. Because a lot of Aristotelian thinkers are more overly theological in their interest. Uh, they don't necessarily talk about the the political economy that's in Aristotle. That seems to really influence Oresme more than most other scholastics that I think we have read or looked at. And I think that really makes the account very helpful in just figuring out what is a a kingdom in the 14th century? What's it supposed to do? If you're someone who actually believes in that kind of state, how's it supposed to work? And it's lovely to just hear all of this explained in, in kind of practical terms without, you know, people imagine, I think people who don't read medieval political theory imagine that it's just always making a bunch of references to God and the Bible, and that it's not really you know, coming to grips with discrete situations. And this work really does that very well. It really talks about, you know, what went wrong in the 1350s? Why were there these rebellions? Well, John debased the currency to fight the English. Uh, and he did this without talking to anybody about it. And he just flippantly did it. And he didn't pay attention to the effects it would have in ordinary French towns. He never consulted anybody about it. He was stupid. And the way to prevent that from happening is to make sure a conversation happens with the nobles who know what the hell is going on 
and the ordinary French towns and villages. Yeah, I mean, I said this before, but it's weird because he talks about uh, the community collecting taxes itself by debasing the currency itself. And I'm just having to make that connection that the community is not, it's not them. It's, it's the, the noble, the people on the estate. Yeah. That's why it's so easy to collect it, the tax. Yeah. 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 Cause the noble will collect it in the, in the town. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to worry about, you have to worry a little bit about corruption with tax collectors and who do you hire? And it takes a while to do all that. That is an issue. And it's something that does bother a resume. If you try to collect a tax, the nobles, you know, even if you can trust your nobles to collect it, the nobles then often have to hire people to collect it, and those people can be problems. So there are always issues with tax collection, and debasement gets you around a lot of those issues. Uh, and that's why, and I do want to emphasize that that is a valuable point now for people to pay attention to. Sometimes taxation is not the most effective way to quickly come up with money because of the political obstacles or the logistical obstacles involved in the collection of the tax. And so sometimes you will do monetary stuff because you can't do physical stuff for various political reasons. This is going on a lot now insofar as the United States has a very difficult time, for instance, passing budgets and making fiscal policy and getting both houses of Congress to sign on to that. But the Federal Reserve Board is a much more dynamic institution that can change positions and policies much more easily. And so what tends to happen is that when you can't do things with fiscal policy, you make up for it with monetary policy. When, say, in 2013, the United States was doing sequestration and making budget cuts, and this was damaging the recovery from the 2008 crash, the monetary policy became a way of trying to make up for this with QE3, the third round of quantitative easing. And that third round of quantitative easing, the the money printing, it was used to buy mortgage-backed securities at that time. Uh, That, of course, distributed money in a way that was not equal and which caused some further political problems because of the way in which the money was distributed. Debasement or monetary solutions will often have side effects that you may not like, But it may nonetheless be the case if you're having an issue with tax collection, you're having an issue with the fiscal stuff, that you are forced to rely on monetary tools. And Oresme, even though he doesn't like debasement, he acknowledges that there are some situations where you're going to have to do that. And the thing is, a lot of contemporary people don't understand this. They don't understand that sometimes monetary policy plays this, this essential role of making up for the sclerotic fiscal state. When the state is not able to function in the ordinary way, you have to find a way to do economic policy with some other part of it, and the currency becomes the place where you start to play. Has it got something to do with um, the people end up choosing it themselves? I mean, I'm just thinking of a note I took down, which is like the puzzle of debasement in the Middle Ages, an article, which is um, people are basically choosing to exchange the old coins for new ones. So they're choosing to basically lower the intrinsic weight value of their coins. So if they're choosing, if the value is going down, why are they choosing that in such large numbers? Because every time a debasement happens, um, there's a huge, there's an increase in the amount of coins. And also there's a lot of tax in terms of, you know, coinage taxes collected by the mint and the king. So, so yeah, why why do people choose that if it's lowering the value? Is it because the legal tender value is not the same as, yeah. 
the actual well when you lower the when you lower the value it doesn't immediately mean that everything that's priced in the currency that the price goes straightforwardly up right so if you debase the currency and you try to buy something that's made in a foreign country and in the foreign country they're selling that in their local currency and they don't change their currency but you change yours then yes if you try to buy something produced abroad you're going to have a harder time buying it right but oftentimes internal prices if you're working with stuff that you make internally it takes a while for those prices to adjust to the debasement and in that period the state can have more purchasing power it's weird though they they considered that but they said the price lag is only two to f- it's only a few weeks it's not very long so so but, yeah that people are choosing to well, get lighter and, and the coins. thing is also it depends on how much debasement you're doing, right? Mm. And whether the debasement is immediately noticeable. So, of course, if you do very, very big debasement, it will be noticed and the adjustment period will be quick. But if you're doing subtle debasement, then it doesn't happen as fast. And remember, it's not just the weight, but also the quantity. You can you can just mint more coins without changing the weight, and that's going to be harder to catch. Or you can replace some of the metal with something else that seems similar and has a similar weight, but is made of a different substance, you know, just put a little bit more nickel in it. You know, there are things you can do to draw out this process, especially in the Middle Ages when you're talking about metal, right? Mm. Now, these days, uh, you can also, you can also do stuff that uh, changes the value of the currency. And sometimes governments do this deliberately. And they do it deliberately in part to make exports more competitive, right? So say you are trying to boost your exports. If you lower the value of the stuff that you're exporting for the international market, then it becomes easier for foreign populations to buy your stuff, right? So sometimes if you want to give your export industry a competitive advantage, you debase the currency. Now, what that means, of course, is that the wages of the ordinary people don't buy as much in terms of foreign produced stuff. They won't be able to import, but they will be able to buy stuff that's domestically produced because that domestic stuff is all bought and sold in the local currency. So it's not affected in the same way. So if you have a country that is uh, able to produce a lot of what it needs for itself and medieval States, by necessity, were this way because trade was not very reliable in the Middle Ages as a way of meeting basic needs. Uh, In that situation, the debasement will let you buy uh, something without immediately being uh, bludgeoned by massive living standard drop. Yeah, because you can- right. But if you rely on imports, then the debasement will lead to shortages of whatever you import, and that will have a much more severe effect. So, in countries that import a ton, if all of a sudden you can't buy the stuff you were previously importing, and that imported stuff is basic goods that you need, yeah, then you're going to have a major issue. But if you make most of what you need yourself, and let's say you export something, you know, there's something you export, and you're competing with somebody else. Let's say uh, you're Japan and you make cars. And Germany also makes cars. Well, one of the things you could do is you could debase the yen. And then when the Honda sells on the international market, you can sell it for less than you would sell uh, you know, a, a Volkswagen. 
right? And I can give Japan a little advantage in the international market by debasing the currency. Now, of course, if Japan tries to buy something imported from some other country, the Japanese worker won't be able to do that so easily. The price of the import will be higher in Japan than it would be in Germany. So, uh, but if, say, Japan is able to drive the German automakers out of business by doing this, right? If Japan were able to do that, uh, then that wouldn't ma matter so much. Is this just about the trade deficit or just all sorts of things? Because I was thinking you could also use austerity to sort this out or not? Well, if you do austerity to sort it out, you are more likely to have uh, deflationary effects from that. So that's a different set of problems that you get from doing, say, spending cuts, right? Mm. Uh, you know, similarly, you could, do, you could do tax increases to try to get control of inflation, right? Uh, there are lots of different ways that you can try to push down inflation once it gets going. But generally, the physical tools for doing it are slower and harder to use. Like if you wanted to create a new tax to try to get money back out of the economy and get the inflation rate down, you could certainly do that. We could create a new tax and the tax could be targeted. You could ta tax specific things that you think, you know, maybe you don't think cryptocurrency should exist. So you want to tax every, uh, every crypto transaction, you know, enormously high to just eliminate uh, all of that. Right. You could try to institute a tax which which tracks these things or does these things. You could make it the law that the crypto people have to report. And if they don't report, you could shut them down. You could do something like that. Uh, if you were to you know, use taxes, you could bring down inflation gradually over time. The issue is first you have to pass the tax through the legislature. Then you have to you know, the tax has to come into force. Uh, you have to see if the tax actually works. Like, is it well designed? Maybe that, you know, your crypto tax doesn't actually work because the crypto people are able to evade it, right? If that all happens, uh, you know, if, if it all comes off and you get through all of that, then yeah, you can bring down inflation by raising the tax. But if it doesn't, you know, then you've lost a bunch of time during which problems may become more severe. The thing about monetary policy is that monetary policy is quick and that makes it seductive. And sometimes it really is the, the, the thing you have to go with because speed matters sometimes. And so the people who say, oh, no, never use monetary policy, never debase the currency. Well, sometimes it is an emergency and the speed matters. Sometimes you can't wait around for a physical solution or you can't get one because you're gridlocked. Does credit, like changing the credit system as uh, an alternative to debasement, does that fall under fiscal or monetary or both? Well, depends a little bit on, on how your economic system works. Sometimes, you know, the, you know, in modernity, we often have cases where the central bank is, invol is, is involved in bond buying. So the central bank gets involved in the credit system and tries to alleviate credit cr crunches by buying bonds or by buying assets denominated in some currency to alleviate pressure. The Federal Reserve does that. So in those cases, you're talking about a monetary aspect to that. But it, at other points, we're talking about you know, the tax system or the you know, government budget deficits. One of the weaknesses of a lot of ordinary economic commentary is that a lot of it tends to focus on the physical side of debt uh, and not really on the monetary side. So a lot of people will notice when the government has a bunch of debt and go, well, doesn't the government have to deal with this with you know, taxes, doesn't have to balance the books by cutting spending? Well, maybe, but uh, depending on what else is going on, does the government have monetary tools it can use? 
what level of control does the government have over the currency? It, you know, is the government in position to have a lot of leverage in terms of how it runs the currency? If you're the United States of America, for instance, today, you have enormous leverage because you have this huge consumer economy. There are lots of countries that produce things these days, but there aren't very many countries where the uh, the per capita amount of consumption is very high. And there are very few countries where the per capita amount of consumption is very high, and you have hundreds of millions of, of these kinds of consumers. So in the United States, you, know, you can you can buy, you know, people make all kinds of, of plastic stuff in factories all over the world. Americans buy it, buy it, buy it, in very, very large amounts, right? It gives the United States a lot of importance in the system of international trade, because if you have access to the American market, then there's a place to dump your crap, right? But if you don't have access to the American market, then uh, you're going to have a hard time selling this excess manufacturing capacity that you have unless you develop the consumer power of your own citizens. And that involves doing transfers internally that can be very politically and economically costly, right? If you're you know, the Chinese state, you may not really want to give uh, your uh, ordinary Chinese workers more of the money because your local elites that are currently receiving the benefits of the growth, your local governments and your big construction companies, they don't want to not get that money. They'd rather have that money for themselves and they'd rather take that money and then invest it abroad. Right. Uh, so if you're trying to build a consumer base in China, that's a, that's an obstacle you have to face this internal political problem that the Chinese state has. Uh, the thing about the United States is, is it's already got this big consumer market. It's had this big consumer market longer than anybody else. And it's bigger than anybody else's. This is what gives the dollar really its power, because it's the Americans who can buy the stuff. And when they buy it, they'll buy it in dollars. And that's why dollars will be held by people, because they need to get the American to buy their stuff, because who else is going to buy it? Who else is going to buy all this plastic crap? The uh, you know, capacity of the American to overcome their despair, depression, and anxiety over having to exist under capitalism by buying stuff. You know, the, the fact that Americans do this and do this at scale, it's enormously, va enormously valuable to the global economy. This, this kind of trinket goblin thing that Americans do, it's incredibly valuable. I get to say it like that because I'm American, right? But it is. It's this. It's this consumer goblin thing we do, where we just buy garbage to fill our houses up with with garbage, and we have these big houses and they're absolutely full of trash. Uh, that's you know, and we we value all of it, and we don't want to let go of any of it, and we garage sale it because we think somebody else wants it. But it's all garbage, really. It all ends up in the landfill eventually. Um, but you know, we we talk ourselves into the idea that these little things that we find are, are important. Uh, you know, the fact that we do this is an important part of what makes the global economy work. And that's why ultimately everybody you know, holds dollars and wants the American economy to do well and will lend money to the Americans so that they keep buying garbage. <laughs> because if the Americans stop buying garbage, the whole system breaks and doesn't work. It relies on the continued capacity of the American to buy garbage. So our government is always coming up with new ways to ensure that the American can buy garbage without raising the wages of Americans too much. Because if you raise the wages too much, then it becomes harder to employ them, right? And if you can't employ somebody, then they don't get any money. If you chase the jobs out, you know, then they, you don't get any money. So our government restrains wage growth and then tries to find other ways to give Americans money without forcing companies to pay them. And the government tries to subsidize American consumption 
with various kinds of, of fiscal and monetary policies which give Americans money to spend on garbage, but that money isn't tied to their wages. So you, you know, try to get people to borrow money that they don't have, uh, and you, uh, you know, make the interest rate really low to make it easier for them to spend and borrow money. And, and that's what we do. That's how we keep the thing going. And it's how we've managed every crisis for the last 30 years is with more and more of this uh, papering over the fact that Americans' uh, wages are not going up by finding other ways to give them cash so that they can buy more and more stuff. The iron law of the global economy is that the American must be able to buy more next year than last year. And there has to be some way this can happen even when American wages don't rise in real terms. This is all very far afield from Nicholas Erasme. I have clearly digressed plenty, and we're at an hour 15, so we should probably wrap up. So thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.